Let us go to the Lord again in prayer. Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. We come before you trusting in nothing but the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that in us, that is in our flesh, dwells no good thing. And yet, if we be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we we are looked upon as righteous as He is. Not in His inherent righteousness, but in that imputed righteousness that is given to each one of Thy saints. We love You, Father, and yet we cry out for grace to love You more. We desire to enter into a greater fellowship with you and believe that someday it shall be. As the beloved John said, we know not what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him, that is, thy darling son, And we shall see Him as He is. So I pray that You would bless us now as we continue in this worship that it might be honoring and pleasing unto You. That it might be in truth and harmony according to Your Word. And again, we would ask that you would be with faithful men who stand to proclaim the true riches of Christ. And if there are those that you have called to preach your gospel that do not understand the the truth of the matter, we pray that you would open their eyes that they might see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Unlike Charles Spurgeon, uh, in many ways, but unlike him, I'm not, uh, as the congregation here knows, I'm I'm generally not a holiday preacher. And uh, I have occasion used holidays for a message, but... Uh, I'm not a holiday preacher normally, but uh, having said that, I am always, I trust not just one day out of the year, but I'm appreciative of godly women who stand for the things of God and are what I would call those Proverbs 31 women. My problem with 
holidays like this. It's too often much is made to do one day out of the year and nothing is done the other days out of the year, which is which is sad to say and and where we are. But uh, <clears throat> I'm thankful for the godly ladies here and I think uh, they know that because uh, I don't just let them know that uh, on a particular day out of the year. <clears throat> and this is the Lord's Day. And that's more importantly, we need to make more to do with the Lord than we do uh, anything else. And so, uh, what other ministers do and other people do, I'll leave that to themselves. I uh, will not try to be a legalist and uh, Im impose on them beyond Scripture. We want to take up today in verses 5 and 6 of the fourth chapter of Galatians. And as we will say, see a little bit later, I'm going to do something today that I have never done before in preaching. And uh, I'll just say at the outset, it has to do with the subject of adoption. And I gave a paper on this to some ministers and others back in October. And I'm basically going to read the paper. Uh, and uh, even though on the podcast I have uh, already covered the subject, but there are some here that do not have uh, access to the podcast or do not listen to the podcast and so I want to cover the subject uh, for you as well and so but we'll do that but first of all let's read uh, read start at verse 1 and come down through uh, verse 6 now I say that the heir as long as he is a child differed nothing from a servant though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Notice that it states in verse 5 that Christ was sent to redeem those that were under the law. He did, it did not say that Christ was sent to make redemption possible. He didn't come to set a good example, but he, he redeemed. He accomplished the redemptive fact and made, uh, made uh, he, he accomplished redemption for his people. And as I've already said, 
since I'm going to uh, devote much time to the subject of adoption, I'm not going to uh, spend much time on redemption. I'm only going to give a brief summary of the redemptive work of Christ. But I want to do something that... uh, I'm going to first quote from John Owen, who was a Congregationalist in the 1600s, and quote from volume 10 of his works uh, on pages 173 and 174, as was reprinted through the Banner of Trust Truth. And then later I'm going to give a syllogism of what I'm going to read. In other words, it might be a little bit confusing as I read it, but the syllogism, I think, will uh, clarify it a little bit. And John Owen was answering a universalist uh, in this volume 10 as he was writing on the death of death and the death of Christ. But he says, quote, To which I may add this dilemma to our universalist. God imposed his wrath due unto, and Christ underwent the pains of hell for either all the sins of all men or all the sins of some men or some of the sins of all men. If the last, some sins of all men, then have all men some sins to answer for, and so shall no man be saved. For if God entered into judgment with us, though it were with all mankind for one sin, no flesh should be justified in his sight. If the second, that is which we affirm, that Christ in their stead and room suffered for all the sins of all the elect of the world. If the first, why then are not all freed from the punishment of all their sins? That is, the first was that he uh, paid for all the sins of all men. That is, if that was the truth, then why are not all freed from the punishment of their sins. You will say because of their unbelief. They will not believe. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment due to it or not. If so, then why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died from partaking of the fruit of his death? If he did not, then did he not die for all their sins? Let them choose which part they will. Now the syllogism kind of simplifies it a little bit. The Father imposed His wrath upon the Son, and the Son was punished for 
A. Or one, all the sins of all men. Two, all the sins of some men. Three, some of the sins of all men. In which case it may be said that if the last, it be true, that is, he died for some of the sins of all men, then all men have some sins to answer for, and so none is saved. That if the second be true, that is, Christ died for all the sins of some men, then Christ in their stead suffered for all the sins of some men, that is, all the elect in the whole world, and this is the truth. But if the first be the case, that is, that Christ died for the sins of all men, why are not all men free from the punishment due to their sins? You answer because of unbelief. I ask, is this unbelief a sin or is it not? If it is, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it or he did not. If he did, why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If not, he did not die for all their sins. That's the summation given by John Owen. I thought it was well to give that for uh, us as well as for any who may hear this. And this makes it abundantly clear that Christ only redeemed and paid for all the sins of some men that is the elect. And we know some of the passages we quote quite often, Matthew one twenty one, that Jesus... Uh, was going to, uh, uh, he shall die uh, for for the, <laughs> we can't do anything with the God, God can we? I can't even quote Matthew 1, 1. Uh, the angel told Joseph, uh, he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. He shall save his people from their sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Christ was made sin for us that we might be made legally constituted the righteousness of God. In John 10 and 11, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And we could multiply many, many, many passages regarding the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to turn our attention to the subject of adoption. And though verse 5 of Galatians 4 is referring to one aspect of adoption, But because there is much misunderstanding about the subject of adoption, I want to discuss the matter more fully and as briefly as possible. And as I said earlier, I'm going to try your patience by doing something I've never done before, and that's read a paper to you. But uh, I said it the way I wanted to say it, and so I figured the best way to say it again is just to read it. 
and try to uh, go from there. Now notice that the verse, that is verse, uh, uh, verse 5, you notice that the verse does not say that any is adopted. But it says that the redeemed receive the adoption. It doesn't say that they were adopted in verse 5, but it says that the redeemed receive the adoption. Now that's very, very important to keep in mind. Adopt and adoption are not one and the same thing. They are not identical. Adopt is a verb while adoption is a noun. And we'll say more about that a little bit later. And there are five verses to be considered concerning the subject of adoption. The subject of adoption, I believe, is too little preached and too little taught. Not only is it neglected too much, it is often greatly misunderstood. The Greek word for adoption is huiothesis, athesia, and it's only found five times in the New Testament. And the meaning is the placing of a son. Adoption is the placing of a son. Adoption does not make one a son. Adoption is the placing of a son. And obviously, he will become a son, but anyway, we'll say more about that. It was often used when a person did not have an heir to carry on his estate and the person would adopt a son to continue his family lineage. <coughs> now the five times where the word is found, first is Romans 8.15 For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Then Romans 8.23 Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Romans 9.4 Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Galatians 4.5 To redeem them that were under the law that they might receive the adoption of sons. And then Ephesians 1.5 Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. 
Now, in Romans 9, Paul uses the word to describe Israel as a nation under the Old Testament economy where God adopted, as it were, Abraham and his descendants to form the nation of Israel. While various types and figures regarding Israel could be used to describe and to teach many lessons about salvation, uh, about adoption unto salvation, the other four verses should be sufficient to know that adoption, like all other doctrines related to salvation, is a sovereign act of God that originated in Him before creation. That's something you need to bear in mind that it adoption originated in him before creation. Ephesians one five says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Obviously, this declares that adoption is directly connected to the doctrine of election because those that were predestinated unto the adoption of children were the one chosen in Christ as mentioned in verse 4 of Ephesians 1. <clears throat> in other words, Ephesians 1 4, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Too often, adoption is taught as something that takes place when a person exercises faith. I'm going to give some examples. <clears throat> First, I'm going to quote from a well-known theologian among some theologians, especially in former times, Francis Turretin. <clears throat> Francis Turretin said that adoption is, quote, a judicial act of God by which from His mere mercy He adopts through faith in Christ those whom He elected to salvation from eternity into His family and bestow upon them the name and right of sons as to inheritance. End of quote. That comes from a selection of from Turretin's Theological Institutes that was published in 1980 by the Theological School of the Protestant Reformed Churches on page 535. Prior to this, Turretin said that adoption is the other part of justification. That's found on page 533. While there is a legal aspect to adoption... I believe it is confusing to equate adoption with justification. While Turretin's definition of adoption identifies those adopted as those elected to salvation, as clearly stated in Ephesians, 
I find it interesting that in the entire article on adoption, he referenced all other four verses containing the word, but never referenced Ephesians 1.5. I thought that was unique. Though it is true that those adopted into the family of God will come to faith and will receive the blessings of it at that time, this is not the origin or the beginning of adoption. In other words, adoption did not begin, does not begin at faith. As when a couple or a person enters the orphanage and selects a child for adoption, often the recipient or child has no idea what is happening, nor does he consciously accept the adopting parent or parents. Once the legal process is completed, the child is a member of the family and takes on the family name. Likewise, when God elected a portion of the human race to be his family, they were then predestinated unto adoption. The process of adoption was started. Adoption was certain and as sure as all the purposes of God. It seems that many confuse the legal aspect of becoming a child into a family and that of engendering a child into the family. While it is true that regarding the salvation of God that the adopted child will receive the spirit of adoption, the child must first be adopted and not become adopted at the reception of the spirit. As the scriptures declare in Galatians chapter 4, it is because one is already a son that he receives the spirit of adoption, or excuse me, the spirit of his son or the spirit of adoption. This must be clarified or one identifies adoption as something that initially takes place at faith. In fact, A.A. A. Hodge, he's a Presbyterian theologian, not to be confused with Charles Hodge, and I'm quoting, I'll be quoting here from his Outlines of Theology on page 516. In fact, A.A. A. Hodge combines these two, that is, uh, uh, the legal aspect and the, the engendering aspect. He combines these two and their accomplishment at faith. Listen to the following. Now I'm reading from A.A. A. Hodge, as I said on page 516. It appears, however, to us that the words Adoption and sonship, as used in Scripture, expresses more than a change of relation. Let me pause here for just a moment. Uh, there is a word for son that talks about God's children being sons of God that is different from the word for adoption, which is uh, huiothusia. 
And for most of the time, people, uh, theologians, many times will say that the one for son and the one for adoption are the same. But they're not. They're, that's two different situations. For example, a man and a woman can have many children and have uh, many sons. But they're not adopted. They're engendered. So we cannot, we must not con- confuse the two. We must not confuse the two. So, <clears throat> going back, quoting again from Hodge, it appears, however, to us that the words adoption and sonship, as used in Scripture, express more of a change of relation and that they are more adequately conceived of as expressing a complex view, including the change of nature together with the change of relation, and setting forth the new creature in his new relations. The instant a sinner is united to Christ, in the exercise of faith, there is accomplished in him simultaneously and inseparably, first, a total change of relation to God and to the law as a covenant, and two, a change of inward condition or nature. So he's saying that the legal and the engendering are one and the same. Though Hodge does later say that regeneration precedes faith, in the quote given, he affirms that, quote, a change of inward condition or nature, end of quote, takes place at faith. And this is the origin of adoption. Kind of contrary to Ephesians 1.5. It cannot be both ways. I'm saying that. It cannot be both ways. Also in the quote uh, given above, Hodge says that adoption expresses, quote, more than a change of relation, end of quote, but that it includes a change of nature with the change of relation, end of quote. Obviously, when a child is adopted in nature, there is not a change of nature of the child. I'll say more about that later, but uh, 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 if you adopt a, if a, uh, 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 an Anglo-Saxon man adopts a Chinese child, the Chinese child's nature is still Chinese. There's not a change of nature. There's not a change of nature. <clears throat> Obviously, when a child is adopted in nature, there is not a change of nature in the child. There is only a change of relationship according to law. Now, let me interject this. When Paul wrote this, 
according to Roman law, when a man adopted a child, he could never disinherit him. And for many years, I was under the impression and belief that that is still true today. And it may have been at one time in this country, but, and I made that statement, um, made a statement to that effect when I delivered this paper, and someone asked me about that and called me in question, or questioned me about it, and I looked it up, and as far as I know, in every state in the United States, an adopted child can be disinherited, according to law. Now, whether that was true at one time or not, uh, when I adopted my two children, uh, I was informed that I could never disinherit them. So, but according to Roman law at that time, that was the case. And this is what Paul is talking about. So that was from Territon and Hodge, showing that these theologians have confused adoption with justification and faith. Now I'm going to quote from R.L. Dabney, another Presbyterian, old school Southern Presbyterian. He said, quote, Adoption cannot be said to be a different act or grace from justification. Territon devotes, I'm still quoting Debney, Territon devotes only a brief separate discussion of it and introduces it in the thesis in which he proves that justification is both pardon and acceptance. Owen, that is John Owen, that's who Dabney is referring to, says that adoption is but a presentation of the blessing bestowed in justification in new, in new phrase, uh, phrases and relations. The chief doctrinal importance of this idea then is that we have here the strongest proof of the correct the correctness of our definition of justification and of the imputed righteousness upon which it is based in the fact that it is both a pardon and an adoption. And that's from Dabney's Lectures in Systematic Theology, page 627. Though it is true that pardon, justification, acceptance, and other benefits of salvation are in conjunction with adoption, they are not the same. Even if one asserts that each is simply a different facet of the diamond of salvation, it must be understood that it is still a separate and independent feature. And since Dabney referred to John Dick in his lectures on theology, I'm going to give some quotes from John Dick. These were men that were considered some of the ablest of the able in theology that I'm, I'm quoting. <clears throat> I inherited John Dick's lectures on theology. It was printed in the 1800s by 
distant relative uh, whose father was a preacher. Dick wrote, At the same time, it appears to me to be virtually the same with justification. That is, he's saying adoption is the same as justification. And to differ from it merely in the new view which it, it gives of the relation of believers to God and in the particular form in which it, exhibit, it exhibits the blessing to which they are entitled. As it implies a change of state, it must be the same. For this change can take place but once. And whether we say that a sinner passes from a state of guilt and condemnation into a state of favor with God, or that he is translated from the family of Satan into the family of heaven, we express the same fact that only diversify the terms. He who is justified is adopted, and he who is adopted is justified. That's on page 391. You will notice in Dick's assessment that he is expressing the experimental application of adoption to the believer and bypassing the fact that the predestination of some unto adoption before the world, as stated in Ephesians 1.5, was before one was in a state of guilt and condemnation. In other words, man had not fallen. He, had not, he was not in a state of guilt when he was adopted. He had done neither any good or evil, according to Romans 9. Like Tariton, Hodge, Dabney, Owen, and many others, Dick ignores the origin of adoption and begins with the application of adoption to those adopted. After giving some history of different ways in which adoption was trans transacted with the Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, and other nations, Dick says, quote, Adoption, according to the spiritual sense of the term, is an act of God by which He pronounces sinful men to be His sons, admitting them into His family, and gives them a right to the privileges of His children. End of quote. Page 392. But if God predestinated them unto the adoption before the world began, they were not sinful men. They were not sinful men. But Dick says he pronounces sinful men to be sons. I might add that Dick goes on to give many good benefits in the application of adoption to the people of God. But our primary focus here is that this is not the origin of adoption. Adoption originated in the mind and purpose of God before the foundation of the world.
Now I bring to your attention John Gill. You say, well, you're just reading men. Well, I'm reading men, but I, they've said it in good... They've said these things better than I could say them with my own words, and uh, my mind sometimes doesn't remember everything I want to say either. But John Gill on the subject of adoption. Now, obviously, we can't quote everything that Gill wrote on the subject. But I will quote somewhat extensively from him. These quotes come from his body of divinity. Book 2, chapter 5, and book 6, chapter 9. And for anyone who's listening or, can, or desire, I would highly recommend studying both sections and his commentaries on the verses listed above for a fuller and more complete understanding of the subject. But first I'm going to quote from book 2, chapter 5, where Gill shows that adoption is an eternal and eminent act of God. That's eminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. In other words, it hap it, it's in God. It's in God. Quoting Gill, Adoption, as predestination to it, stands next to election, Ephesians 1.5, which is no other than His will to adopt the chosen ones, which is His adoption of them. For as the will of God to elect any is His election of them, so His will to adopt the same is His adoption of them. And the complete essence of it lies in His will. And is as such an eternal, imminent act of it. In like manner as election is, and may be considered as a branch of it, at least of the same nature with it, and which agrees to the sense of the word adopto, from whence adoption comes, which is a compound of two words, one is ad and the other is opto, and ad means to, opto means to choose, so that adoption is God's choice or election of some to be His children, and by this option or choice of His they become so. The Greek word for adoption throughout the New Testament is weothusia, which signifies putting among the children. And the phrase used by God in Jeremiah 3.19, how shall I put them among the children? Or as putting one for and in the room of a son. That is a stranger and not a son by birth. A constituting and accounting such a one as a son according to his choice, will, and pleasure. And divine adoption is an act of the sovereign grace and goodwill of God. Ephesians 1.5, which we've already read. To which he is not induced by a motive out of himself. That is, God, it wasn't something outside of God that caused him to adopt. It was in him. 
It was an imminent act. Not by any excellency in the creature, nor for want of a son. He already had a son in his second person. One or the other of which is the case in human adoption, as Moses, a goodly child by Pharaoh's daughter, and of Esther, a beautiful person in, in a relation by Mordecai. But divine adoption is a person's exceedingly unworthy and undeserving, nothing engaging in them, but only strangers, but children of wrath even as others, and like the wretched infant, Ezekiel 16. Remember in Ezekiel 16, it says, I passed by and saw a child polluted in its own blood. Anyway, it is an act of distinguishing grace. It is of men and not of angels who are the servants and not sons, or who are servants and not sons, at least not by adoption. And, some, and of some men and not all. Though all are alike in their nature state, and it is a most amazing act of unmerited love and free grace. 1 John 3, 1. Now this is an eternal act of grace. Now he has two points to show that it's an eternal act. And the first point has four points under it. And the second point has four points under it. I don't expect you to keep all of that outlined in your mind, but hopefully it'll help somewhat. First, he's showing that first, it did not begin in time, but commenced in eternity. That's his first point. That it wasn't in time, it was in eternity. The second point is that it was an act of God or free grace from all eternity. But that it was, was not in time, but in eternity, the four points under it. One is, it is an act that does not at first take place at believing. Indeed, the saints are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus openly and manifestly. Galatians 3.26 But then it is not faith that makes them children, but what makes them appear to be so or to be children. Adoption is the act of God, not an act of faith. Secondly, adoption does not first commence at regeneration. Adoption and regeneration are two distinct blessings, and the one is previous to the other, although they are commonly confounded together by divines, as we saw in quoting Turretin and Hodge and Dabney and uh, Dick and others. Gill continuing, Regeneration is not the foundation of adoption, but adoption the foundation of regeneration. Or, the reason why men are adopted is not because they are regenerated, but they are regenerated because they are adopted. By adoption, they are put into the relation of children. And by regeneration, they have a nature 
given to them suitable to that relation. I'm having to restrain myself from chasing a rabbit right there. But Number three, the act of adoption is previous to any work of the Spirit of God upon the hearts of His people. Because ye are sons, sons already, sons by adopting grace, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, both to convince, convert, regenerate, and effectually call by His grace, and sanctify, and also to comfort, and to, edif- and to enable to cry, Abba, Father, witnessing to their spirits that they are the children of God. And hence, He is called the Spirit of Adoption. And it is His influences, influences, teachings, and leadings which are the evidences of adoption. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Not that those influences, operations, and leadings make them, but make them evident to be such. Galatians 4.6 and Romans 8.14 Fourthly, divine adoption or sonship took place before any work of Christ was wrought in time for any of the sons of men. It was before His incarnation and birth for as much then or because the children are partakers of flesh and blood the children of God who are by adopting grace. Therefore he also, Christ himself, took part of the same. For though the nature uh, he assumed was what was in common to all mankind, yet he assumed it with a particular view to the children of God, the spiritual seed of Abraham, whose nature he is said to take, and for whose sake he he was the child born, the son given, Isaiah 9, 6, and Hebrews 2, 14, 16. And in consequence, they must be the children of God before Christ suffered and died. Secondly, adoption is an act of God's free grace from all eternity. One, the elect of God are frequently spoken of as distinct number of men given to Christ as previous, as previous to their coming to Him by faith, which is the certain fruit and consequence of the gift. See John 17, verses 2, 6, 9, 24, and John six thirty-seven. Yea, they were given to Christ before the world was. For if grace was given to them in him before the world before the world began, they themselves must be given to him and be in him before the world began. Second Timothy one nine. Now these were given to Christ in the relation of children, and therefore must be children so early, because I and the children which God had given me, Hebrews two thirteen. Two, the elect of God were espoused to Christ in eternity. Three, the elect of God were taken by Him into the covenant of His grace as children. 
the sum and substance of which runs thus, I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6.18 Now this covenant was from everlasting, as the setting up of Christ the mediator, if it of it so, so soon. And the promises and blessings made and provided before the world began do abundantly testify. And then fourthly, predestination to the adoption of children is mentioned among, along with election as of the same date with it, as an illustration of it, and as an addition to it, or rather a branch of it, as men by election are not only chosen to holiness, but to adoption and the inheritance annexed to it. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Adoption is a sentence of grace conceived in the divine mind and settled in the divine will and pronounced in the divine predestination, which, it, which, which is an eternal act of God. So says Dr. James, quoting James, not James, Ames, excuse me, Dr. Ames. Adoption is a grace, gracious sentence of God which sentence is pronounced in the same variety of degrees as justification, for it was first pronounced in divine predestination, Ephesians 1.5, afterwards in Christ, Galatians 4.5, then in believers themselves, verse 6. <clears throat> I do not have time this morning to read uh, from book 2, and the rest of my article, I mean book book six, uh, chapter nine of Gill, and my rest of my article. But Lord willing, we will do that this afternoon. I hope that it was somewhat clear. I know that reading sometimes uh, takes away from uh, other forms of communication, but. Uh, I believe I'm justified in doing it. <laughs> anyway, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word. And may we always seek Your Word even at the expense of men, even good godly men. whereby all the glory and all the praise belongs unto you. It was not anything that you saw in us. It was only because of your sovereign will that you predestinated us unto the adoption of children before the world began. May we ever give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.